Last Sunday morning, our missions chairman, Karen, introduced us to a challenge initiated by our missions team to raise $2,500 to provide a clean water well among a people group where it's desperately needed through a partnership with IDES, International Disaster Emergency Services. In many of the world's poorest places, families have to walk miles every day just to get water that is often dirty and unsafe for human consumption. Through our combined efforts, we can provide a source of fresh, clean water in the name of Jesus to satisfy the physical thirst of a group of individuals, and at the very same time, pave the way for an open door to share the good news of the gospel with, with people who, who may be thirsting just as much or maybe even more spiritually. Jesus Christ is the living water. And so as a basis for today's message, I want us to use that word well, W-E-L-L. -L. I want us to use that as an acrostic. We're going to look at those four letters of that word well, and we're going to consider what they mean to, to uh, those who are thirsting spiritually. You know, every one of us this morning is acquainted with physical thirst. Uh, every one of us at one point or another in our lives have been thirsty. Did you know that 80% of your body is made up of fluids? Apart from brains and bones and a few organs, we're simply walking water balloons. Our bodies need water like tires need air. And God has wired us as human beings with this physical low fluid indicator. Now, there are many indicators such as dry mouth or thick tongue, which I have at sometimes. Uh, there are headaches, uh, weak knees, other things as well. But we also have a low fluid indicator spiritually. And if you have a snarling temper this morning, if you worry a lot, if you're dealing with uh, guilt, or if you harbor fear or hopelessness, uh, sleeplessness, loneliness, resentment, all of these things can be symptoms of a dryness deep within. Pains in your heart are indicators spiritually that you need spiritual water. And this morning, we need to come like we do every day and take a good swallow of water, God's well, to flood our souls. And so we ask the question, where can we, where can we find water for our souls? Well, Jesus gave an answer one October day in Jerusalem. People had packed the streets for the annual reenactment of God, giving water through a rock out in the desert as Moses struck that rock and water flowed forth. And so in honor of that miracle, people would come together every year and they would actually sleep in tents. And each morning a priest would fill up a golden pitcher with water from a spring and that water would be passed down a people-lined path to the temple. And this would be announced by trumpets while he would do this every day for seven days. And then on the last day, which is referred to in the scriptures in John chapter 7, verse 37, as the greatest day of the feast, the priest would walk around the altar and he would douse that altar with seven vessels of water. 
And it was most likely at this point that Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Around that crowd that day were finely frocked priests and surprised people at the voice of Jesus. There were wide-eyed children as they heard this person shouting and grandparents who probably paused. Uh, many, many had heard Jesus speak before, but never in this tone of voice. Uh, not in such an intense tone of voice. The New Living Translation says, uh, the New Living Translation says that, uh, that he stood and he shouted. And this was not the, the traditional rabbinic method of teaching, which was to sit and speak softly. But Jesus stood and he shouted. It's as though God was pounding on the gavel of heaven to get people's attention that day in the midst of this great feast. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was demanding people's attention. And so we say, why? Well, because time was short. You see, within six months, Jesus would be hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. And he saw all the people, the, the myriads of people who were thirsty in their spiritual lives, and that they needed water, not for their throats, but for their hearts. And so Jesus invites them to move away from all of the symbolism that they were celebrating and to find the real item, Jesus himself. And I want you to take note of who Jesus is speaking to here. These are, these are not prostitutes. Uh, these are not troublemakers. Uh, these are not moral reprobates. They are at a religious convention, a religious feast. There were religious symbols in every direction as Jesus is speaking. I mean, Jesus could have pointed out any one of those symbols as a source of drink. But he doesn't do that. For these were symbols only. Jesus pointed to himself, the one to whom the symbols pointed and in whom they were fulfilled. You see, religion pacifies, but it never satisfies. Church activities might hide a thirst in our lives, but only Jesus quenches the thirst. And so Jesus says, drink of me. Now, we also need to see that the verb used here in the original language of the Bible suggests repeated swallows, literally. Let him come to me and drink and keep drinking, and keep drinking, and keep drinking. Regularly sipping satisfies, satisfies the thirsty soul. Ceaseless communion satisfies thirsty souls. And Jesus is saying, come to the well that never runs dry. All we need to do is to go to the well of God's provision, and there our hearts receive everything we need in him. This well is the prescription for quenching our dry, dry hearts. And so this morning, let's go to the well and let's see what God is doing for us. 
and what he wants to do for all of those thirsty souls who would seek him. And so we start with the letter W, which stands for God's work. Let's consider, first of all, what God has done for us and what he continues to do for us. In October 1347, a fleet of ships returned from the Black Sea, carrying in its cargo the death sentence for the continent of Europe. By the time the ships had landed in Italy, most of the sailors were dead. And the few that survived were racked with fever, and their skin was covered with festering boils. Well, when the authorities heard that these ships were filled with disease, they ordered them to leave the harbor. But it wasn't soon enough because the fleas, uh, the, the fleas had found their way down the ropes. These rats that were infected with fleas scampered down the ropes into the village and the bubonic plague had begun its ruthless march across the continent. And within five years, only five years, 25 million people, one-third of Europe's population, were blotted out by the plague. Three centuries later, it still raged on. As late as 1665, 100,000 people in London died from this plague until a cold winter came and finally killed all the fleas. And when we make a list of history's worst plagues, the Black Plague ranks near the top of them all. But the Bible, the Word of God, ranks the worst plague as the plague of sin. No culture avoids this plague. No nation escapes. No person sidesteps the infection of sin. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned. Every human being sins and falls short of the glory of God. And this sinful nature that you and I possess, and that the whole human race possesses, this, this sinful mind wants to dismiss God, to get rid of God. And we leave God's path to follow our own paths. And the lack of this God-centeredness leads to self-centeredness. And we realize that this plague of sin celebrates its middle letter, I. It's my life. God says and God commands us, to love, and yet we choose to hate. God instructs us to forgive others, but we opt to get even. God calls for self-control, but we promise self-indulgence. And so we pay a high price for this self-obsession, and, and it causes chaos in our own personal lives, and our families, uh, in our communities, in our states and in our whole world. You see, when you do what you want, and I do what I want, and no one gives a, gives a, a lick as to what God wants, humanity just kind of explodes because everyone is infected with this plague. And there's no hope because we're so infected and also 
thirsty. We cannot save ourselves. And so God opens up the floodgates of heaven and, and he sends to us Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 to, to describe uh, this floodgate. Paul says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead because of our sins, that sin plague, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And God saved you by, this, by his special favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, Paul says. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And so this is, this is called God's grace. We are the object of God's grace. Even though we're infected thoroughly by this plague of sin, we're the object of God's grace. And He has poured it upon us in a person of His Son, Jesus. And this morning, you are defined not because of who you are and what you are by nature. You are defined by God's grace when you trust in Jesus. It is who you are in God that you are defined by His grace. That in God's hand, God takes a mistake and He makes a masterpiece. And you hang as God's work of art, a testimony of his, of his gallery of grace. And God draws together people from all over this planet, just disjointed blotches of sin in our lives. And he renders us an expression of his love. And we become Pictures, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, examples of the incredible wealth of his favor and his kindness toward us. We sinners need to, need to drink deeply from this well of grace. Because, you see, Paul says that we are saved by grace. And our deeds don't bring us into God's kingdom. And our deeds don't keep us in God's kingdom. But grace does. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And so it is for each of us because of God's grace. God's work. So let's look at the letter E in the word well. W-E stands for God's energy. Not only does God save us, not only does He do the work for us to bring us into His kingdom, but He wants to also provide His energy to be all that He intends for us to be. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 that, that as you, uh, as, as, as a Christian, if you know Jesus, he says, if you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, then he says, so continue to live in him. Continue to live in him the same way that you received him. And so how does one receive Christ? Christ. 
Well, by coming thirsty and drinking deeply of God's grace in Christ. How does one then live in Christ? By coming thirsty and drinking deeply. Jesus said, come to me. He didn't say, come to, come to the church building to find life. Although you can find life in a church. If, if it's preaching the gospel anyhow, if it's being faithful and preaching the word, and it's presenting Jesus Christ. But he said, don't come to the church thinking that you can find life in church. No, he says, come to me. Don't come to a system, but come to me. Come to me and drink. Thirsty throats gulp water when they're thirsty. And Jesus says, keep coming to me. Keep drinking of me. Annual fill-ups just don't work. Monthly ingestions simply won't do. We are hiking through this death valley of life, and we need to drink deeply of Christ every day, or we're not going to make it. There needs to be a continuous filling in a daily walk with Christ. The, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, uh, he's talking to the Galatians, and he says, he says in essence, you foolish Galatians, uh, you began your life in Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit of God gave you new life, raised you from the dead, and now you're trying to make it complete by your own power? How foolish, Paul says. This is foolish. Who has bewitched you, Paul says. And Paul is trying to say, is God nothing more to you than a jumper cable to get you started? Is God nothing more than just good for startups? No, Paul says. That's foolishness. Paul, writing to the, uh, the Corinthians church, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that there's jealousy amongst you as a church. There's strife among you. That shouldn't be. Uh, that should not be because you're acting just like mere men, like people in the world who don't know Christ. Because when you try to live the Christian life in your own power, guess what? You act just like the world. And how foolish that is. Uh, that's kind of like trying to push a, a two-ton a two Humvee up a hill every day. Uh, that's what the Christian life is like, living in your own power. It becomes work. Lots of work. Heavy work. It, it's a picture of thirsty souls. And, and if that's where you are in your personal life and relationship to Christ... If your relationship with Jesus is nothing but work, then you are a thirsty soul that needs to come and drink. You need to be filled up with the power of Christ. We need the river of God's Spirit to well up within us to give us the power. But you know, we rush off trying to do it in our own power. Many of you this morning probably would rather do something, uh, something, anything, rather than to wait upon God. You know, as you go back to the early church, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said to the disciples, hey, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't go. I know you're eager to go, he said, but wait here for the Father to give you the Holy Spirit, just as I told you he promised to do. Wait, he says. Wait. 
Before you go, stand still. Prior to stepping forth, he says, sit down. Stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Now, the disciples, uh, all of these disciples, had plenty of reasons to leave. Uh, there were probably some who wanted to get out and just start working. Uh, there were those who probably wanted to leave the city of Jerusalem because all of these soldiers were walking around looking for all the followers of Jesus. And I believe that there were other men and women who had businesses to run. And, and maybe they said, we need to get home and take care of our business. The disciples themselves had ample reasons to leave. But they didn't. They obeyed God. They stay and they stay together. And when you read in the first chapter of Acts that as many as 120 souls huddled into an upper room uh, in a house, um, that's really kind of remarkable. I mean, if we took 120 people and we stuffed them into uh, a living room, the average size house living room, uh, that's kind of what you would get. 120 people packed together in a living room. Um, and, and that is just nothing but a recipe uh, for uh, grumbling uh, and complaining. Uh, it's almost impossible to get Christians just to come and sit in the front pews of a church. Uh, but, but there are 120 men and women who have gathered together in this house. And one day goes by, two days go by, three days go by. Uh, how many of you will, will even go to a church building and pray for one hour, let alone for one day or two days or five days or ten days? I mean, can you imagine Peter and Nathaniel and Nathaniel looking at Peter and saying, Peter, you betrayed Jesus. And I'm sure Peter looked around at the other disciples and he said, well, you guys all ran off and left me all by myself. And they're there for 10 days, huddled together, tight confines, and they're praying And then Acts chapter 2 says uh, that God's Spirit comes upon them. God's Spirit comes upon them. Now I want you to think about this. They were obedient. They were obedient even though they were reluctant to do what they did. I mean, who has time to wait? I mean, we groan at such a thought of waiting, of praying. But you know what? Waiting doesn't mean inactivity. It means him activity. You see, when I wait for a bus, I look for and I expect the bus to come. And you see, when God says, wait, you know, wait for me, it means watching for Jesus in all of life. And so every day, as I'm waiting on him, I'm watching for him. I'm looking for him. In Isaiah chapter 40 we read, But those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk 
and not faint. You see, the upper room was occupied by 120 Christians. Now listen, at that time there were probably 4 million people in the whole land of Palestine. So this means that fewer than 1 in 30 were Christians. And yet, just look at the fruit of their work. Because of 120 disciples, the world was turned upside down at that point. I mean, do you ever wonder what would happen today in, in a group like uh, makes up First Church of Christ? If we only waited upon the Lord and looked for Him and saw Him and what He would do in our midst... And so there's God's work, and there's God's energy, and then there's the L, the first L, God's lordship. Now, lordship is a big word, but very simply, it just means that God is sovereign, and we can trust His perspective and His purposes to embrace God's sovereignty is to drink from the well of His Lordship, that He is our captain and He knows what is best. It says in Psalm 115 verse 3 that our God is in the heavens and He does as He wishes. Isaiah 43 says, from eternity to eternity I am God. No one can oppose what I do. No one can reverse my actions. Ephesians 1 says, He chose us from the beginning, and all things happened just as He decided long ago. Uh, Lamentation, Lamentations chapter 3 says, Can anything happen without the Lord's permission? You see, there is no leaf that falls without God knowing it. There's no dolphin uh, that gives birth in the sea without his permission. There's no wave that crashes on the shore apart from his calculation. God has never been surprised by anything that's happened. The problem is not the strength or kindness of God. The problem is the agenda of the human race. Because you see, our priority as a human race is we. It's me. And every so often in life, we find ourselves standing before God's counter of life and thinking, hey, we know the itinerary. We know what's best. And you know what? Our itinerary is usually good health, a good job promotion, and good retirement. Many times, God checks the itinerary He's created, and He says, yeah, that's for you. But there are times when God says, no, that's not for you. That isn't the journey I planned for you. I have routed you through the city of struggle. And we can stamp our feet, and we can shake our fist at God, or we can rest in the knowledge that God knows what He is doing. You know, I wish I could sit down and just interview Joseph from the Old Testament this morning. I mean, his brothers abused him. They sold him into slavery, hoping that he would be killed. And was God watching that? Yes, God was watching that. 
Our sovereign God used their rebellious hearts to save a nation from famine and the family of the Messiah from extinction. And Joseph told them years later, God turned into good what you meant for evil. And I wish I could talk to Jesus. He cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane that he wanted a different itinerary. Remember that? Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. I want plan B, Jesus says. I don't want nails in my hands. I don't want to take the sin of the whole world upon my body. But then he says to his father, yet I want your will, not mine. And then there's this, an important phrase here. Notice what it says there. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. You see, folks, we may not go down the road that we want to go down. But God takes us down the road. And when he takes us down the road of struggle or whatever it might be, he comes and he strengthens us for what would happen. And then God's grace was manifested on the cross and his power was deployed. You see, you were called to endure. Uh, are you called to endure a Gethsemane, I guess is what the question would be? You may be. Have you been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake? If so, then come thirsty. Don't sit and mope about it, but come to the well and drink deeply under his lordship. Because he can take what is disaster in our eyes, and he can make it this beautiful masterpiece displaying His grace and His power and His majesty and His Lordship. It says in Isaiah chapter 43 that when you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Now that's horrible when we think about it. But God says, no, it won't burn you. For I am the Lord your God. You see, nothing comes our way that has not been first passed through the filter of God's love. Margaret Clarkson, in her book titled Grace Knows Best in Winter, wrote this, she says the sovereignty of God is the one rock to which the suffering human heart must flee. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to Him, and evil cannot touch His children unless He permits it. God is the Lord of human history, of every member of his redeemed family. Now, God's ways are always right, okay? They may not make sense to us, 
they may be mysterious to us, difficult to us, even painful to us. But God's ways are always right. And so we need to come and we need to drink deeply in the midst of them so God can strengthen us. God's work, God's energy, God's lordship, and then finally, God's love. Pippin Ferreris wants to go deep, deeper than any person has ever gone. Pippin is a Cuban diver who's descended into 531 feet of water, armed with nothing but a long pair of flippers, a wetsuit, deep resolve, and one breath of air. Now to look at Pippin, he doesn't look like all that much. Uh, he looks kind of like a fish out of water. Now can you imagine what would happen if I jumped into the ocean? I mean, I'd set a new depth record, that's for sure, straight to the bottom, just like a rock because of my size. The Pippin Ferreris' round trip lasted 3 minutes and 12 seconds. And to prepare for such a dive, he loads his lungs with 8.2 liters of air, nearly twice the capacity of a normal human being inhaling and exhaling for several minutes, his windpipe sounding like a, like a bicycle pump. Then he wraps his knees around the crossbar of an aluminum sled that lowers him to the sea bottom. No free diver has ever gone farther. And yet still, Pippin says, I want to go deeper. The mystery of the deep just, just calls to him, and he wants to go deeper. Well, folks, God's love for us is immeasurable, more vast than any of us can possibly understand. I mean, he loved us before we knew him. How deep is God's love for us? Well, it says in Ephesians, may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love really is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it's so great, you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And so envision Pippin down in the ocean, the equivalent of a 50-story building, where he can turn and not see anything but water. His whole world at that point is just water to his left, to his right, beneath him, above him. It's all water. Water defines his dive. It dictates his direction. His world is water. And so can God bring us to the place that we go so deep into his love that all we see and all we know is God's love? I mean, grab a hold of this little verse that's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 that says, God is love. You see, God's love has nothing to do with you. 
Others love you because of who you are. They, they love me because of my personality, you know, because I'm so handsome and because of my figure, <laughs> not. And they love me because of my smile and my baldness and my charms, but not God, you know? He loves you and he loves me because God is God and God is love. It says in Deuteronomy, uh, the, the, the seventh chapter says, The Lord did not choose you and lavish his love on you because you were larger or greater than other nations. And he's speaking here to uh, the, the uh, um, people of Israel. He says, For you were the smallest of all nations. It was simply because the Lord loves you. You see, you can't influence God's love. I mean, if you could, John would have written, God is occasional love, or sporadic love, or fair weather love. I mean, if our actions altered his love, then God wouldn't be love. Don't we need a fountain of love that will not run dry? When you feel unloved, I invite you to go to the hillside outside of Jerusalem where Jesus hangs there bleeding, tortured, cross-nailed, thorn-crowned, eyes beaten shut, shoulders as raw as ground beef, lips bloodied and split, fists full of hair yanked from his beard, gasping for air. And as you peer into that crimson face of the heavenlies, remember this. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Still sinners. Please don't trust any other yardstick of love. I mean, the sight of the healthy or successful, that prompts many people to say, well, you know what, God really must love that person because they're so successful. Or look at them, they're healthy. They don't have any problems. And so God must really love them. Or the other extreme is that we see a lonely, frail body lying in a hospital bed, and we immediately deduce, well, you know what, God must not love them. Or this person has cancer, or, or that person has all kinds of problems, and so we say, God must not love them. Just look at them. You see, success doesn't signal God's love, and struggles don't indicate the lack of God's love. The gauge is not a good day or a bad day. The gauge is the dying hours of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for me. That's the gauge. And so would you accept Jesus' invitation today? As it says in John chapter 15, would you abide in my love? God invites us to come and abide in his love. Now folks, when you abide someplace, what does that mean? It, well, that means that you live there. You take up residence there. 
And God, the Son of God, comes to us and he says to us, will you come and live in my love? In John chapter 15, what's that chapter about? Well, John chapter 15 is about the vine and the branches. And so he says there, if you're going to abide in my love, then you need to abide as a branch and a vine. Abide with each other. Hang on to Christ the same way that a branch clutches the vine. Does a branch ever release a vine? Does a branch ever stop eating? If branches ever headed up seminars, do you know what the topic would probably be? It would probably be, get a grip, secrets of vine grabbing. How well do we pass the vine test today? Do you release yourself from Christ's love? Do you go unnourished? Do you ever stop drinking from His love? If you do, as a result, you become dry, parched, loveless people. And when people hurt you, or when you hurt people, or when you say things that are critical, that's an indication that your heart is dry, that you're not abiding in Christ's love. You're not where you should be. You've separated yourself from His love. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God says, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. God's love cannot be legislated, but it can be chosen. So will you choose it for the sake of your heart today? Would you choose it? For the sake of your soul, would you choose it today? For the sake of your family, would you choose to live in His love? Would you choose, for the sake, uh, choose it for the sake of your church? For the sake of Jesus? Would you choose it for the sake of those people all around the world whom you can impact for Jesus by giving of your prayers and your resources, such as helping to provide clean, life-giving water through a new well? Let me just read one passage of Scripture as we kind of wrap things up here today. It's a powerful passage that's found in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, where the Apostle Paul says, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who loved us, it says. And out of that love, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only one, the only one who can separate you from the love of God is you. Will you choose His love? Will you choose to abide in His love today?